be reading this morning from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Thank you for providing it for us and sustaining it through the ages that we have it today. So we come, O oh God, to you in faith, asking you to work in our hearts according to your word by your spirit at work within us. Help me, your servant, O oh God. Protect me from error and be with your people. May they receive the word with joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early days of the China Inland Mission, we're looking at the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, there was a, a young man who set off to serve Christ there in China. As pay for his service, he was given an annual income of $2,500. After a while, his reputation as an honest and hardworking man began to grow, even among the businessmen that he came to know there on the field. One day, the president of a company wrote to him asking him to leave the mission organization and come to work for his company. As payment, he was offered a yearly salary of $5,000, double. It doesn't sound like much today, but then yes. $5,000, double what he was currently making. After the young man declined the offer, it was raised to $7,000. But again, he declined. So it was raised to $10,000, four times. But again, he declined. And the president of the company finally asked him if the salary was the reason that he continued to refuse his offer. This was the young man's response that he wrote back. No, sir, the salary is certainly big enough, but the job is not. The salary's good, but the job isn't big enough. You see, certain jobs are too big to be filled by ordinary people motivated by ordinary reward. Certain jobs even require people who are willing to say no to what others would never be able to say no to. 
And certain jobs are even the reward themselves. The privilege of being able to do it is more than enough. And if ever, if ever there was such a job, it is most certainly the call to carry the gospel to those who are lost and dying in their sin. It's a privilege to be an ambassador for King Jesus. And it's most certainly one that is often carried out by many people with full abandon of all earthly comfort and all earthly reward. But it's not as if the call to evangelize the lost is the end of the job. Last I checked, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Not just go and preach the gospel. He said, go and make disciples. You see, the job is much bigger than just telling other people the good news. Because when God saves people, he saves them from their sin. He brings them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But then what does he do? He ushers them into community. He ushers them into a church that is tasked with discipling them and helping them grow. And God cares so much about the church that he gives the church clear and specific instructions on not only how believers are to relate to one another within the confines of the church, but God has also told us how his church is to be governed, how it's to be led. You see, God is a God of order, That shouldn't surprise anybody, right? You've heard that before. God is a God of order. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God wants his church to be a church of order. God cares about how his church functions. You see, God wants his people not only to reflect him in their personal lives, but God wants his people to reflect him in their corporate life as a family as well. And that is definitely a big job. That is a big job. And we get a glimpse into just how big it is right here in this text in Acts 6, one through seven. As we take time this morning to celebrate God's gift of new deacons here at the chapel, I want us to take a moment to see not only why those first deacons were raised up in the early New Testament church there in Jerusalem, but I also want us to see how deacons are key to achieving the kingdom results that help the church not only grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also help the church grow in the scope and the number of disciples that it's making as well. So we'll begin uh, looking at that by first considering the complaint that arises within the church in verse one. You see it right there, a complaint arose. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is our first of three points, the complaint. I'll remind you again, Luke uh, is writing the book of Acts. Uh, We're actually uh, been studying the gospel according to Luke for a while. This is his companion volume. So you can think of Luke and Acts as a two-volume history of the church, a history of uh, uh, the ministry of our Lord Jesus and his church after he arose. Uh, Luke reminds us at the beginning of verse one, look what it says. In these days, that is those very early days, the disciples were increasing in number. The disciples were increasing in number. In number, it's important for two reasons. First, him saying this is important for two reasons. First, it establishes that the church was indeed growing in spite of the challenges that it had been facing. And second, 
it shows that the growth that the church was experiencing is what leads to the complaint that comes. So this word increasing is very important and instructive for us. If you go back to the day of Pentecost in chapter two, the church consisted of about 120 people. You might wonder, where'd they get that number? Well, you get it in Acts 1.15. Uh, Luke says a number gathered there in the upper room was about 120. Okay, so that's about where they were at the day of Pentecost, 120 people. After the Holy Spirit falls upon them in power, Peter preaches to the multitudes that had gathered there at the temple. We're told in chapter two, verse 41, that about 3,000 souls were added that day. Can you imagine in one day? You go from 120 to 3,000. Then in chapter two, verse 47, we are told that even more were being added day by day. The church is growing rapidly. In chapter four, following the miraculous healing of that lame beggar, the church meets its first persecution. Church is growing, now comes persecution. Peter and John, you might remember, they're brought before the council and they're told you are no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. But what'd they do? They continued to preach. And what happened? In chapter five, what happens? They get arrested. <laughs> First it was, we'll just bring you before the leaders, right? And give you a good talking to. Now they get arrested and they get beaten. But they counted it as joy. If you go back and read chapter five, they were thankful to be able to suffer with Jesus. And then we're told, by the way, they're arrested. You might remember they get delivered from there. Uh, they go, we're told in verse 542, just one verse, one verse before 6-1. Put your eyes up there, look. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Even after all that, they didn't stop. They kept preaching. They kept preaching. And look at 6.1. We just read it. What does it say? Those disciples were increasing in number. Is there a connection here? Preaching and teaching of the word, growing of the church right? More and more people are believing as the word is preached. The church was growing in spite of all the challenges that it was facing. In spite of persecution, the church is growing. But even this growth led to yet another challenge. It shouldn't surprise us. Growth often leads to new and at times unexpected challenges. If you've grown personally, you face challenges, right? Families face challenges as they grow. Communities face challenges as they grow. Businesses face challenges as they grow. And yes, even churches face challenges when they experience growth. And the church in Jerusalem faces a new one right here in chapter six, verse one, where it says, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected and the daily distribution. We've been told in chapter two and chapter four how the, the, uh, all the disciples were together and they were, they were selling their goods and giving to each other as there is need, right? They're, they're freely giving to one another of what someone else might need. But now the Hellenists are saying, what about us? Our widows, see 1 Timothy chapter five for more information on the distribution to widows as Paul clears that up for us later in the church's life. They're not getting this distribution. 
When I hear this, I'm reminded of an African proverb that my good friend from the Gambia once told me on a long car ride. Uh, this is how he told it. Um, he said, a team of oxen were pulling a heavy wagon along a road. The wagon could barely contain the massive load and the wheels were making very loud creaking noises. When the oxen couldn't bear the awful sound any longer, they stopped, they turned, and they screamed out at the wheels, why are you making such a noise? We're the ones doing all the labor, so it should be us and not you who are constantly crying out and complaining. And I thought, that was a great story, Quessie. I don't know what it means. And he said, that's why it's a proverb, my friend. Here's what it means. The ones who complain the most are the ones who have the least to do. The ones who complain the most are the ones who have the least to do. I know that kind of complaining. Guilty, right? We all know that kind of complaining. That's what we're accustomed to. People who complain for complaint's sake. But is that the kind of complaining we see here in Acts 6? Is this just empty complaining for the sake of complaining? Is this just people trying to drive a wedge of division? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked, or at least I asked for you. The Greek word that's used here is the same one for complaint that is used in the Septuagint. If you know what the Septuagint is, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word that's used when describing the complainings or the grumblings of the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness following, the exodus, following that exodus. So it's like Luke wants us to think back to that time. So in one sense, there likely are negative connotations given to the grumblings here, maybe even to the attitudes. And I would uh, say that it's probably more to the attitudes of one complaining. It, you can have a good complaint, right? But you can complain in a not good way. Sounds like my home a lot of the time. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, children. Or Megan says that to me. Either way, uh, we hear it a lot, right? We hear it. If you're not aware, I pointed out earlier, Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who most likely had come back to Jerusalem from that diaspora that had cast them in different places. Or, or perhaps these are some of those Greek-speaking Jews who came uh, to the apostles so that they could be healed. They were seeking the miracles of the apostles. Luke uh, brings that up in Acts chapter 5. You think about it, if you're one of these Hellenists, you would have returned to Jerusalem expecting to retain much of the cultural influence and possibly the cultural affluence that you had when you lived in your other place, right? When you show up and go, these are my people. We all believe in Jesus. Uh, let me bring what I had and bring it here and I'll get the same thing, right? Both are Jews. Both are Jews. But do you think there might've been jealousy? Do you think there might've been concern over how much there was to distribute? Do you think that possibly in a sinful fallen world that two people who had so much in common but yet spoke a different language might actually not get along? I know that's shocking to you. So I would say, looking at this, we cannot see their complaint as purely founded in just jealousy and bad motive. There's obviously something else going on here. So I think the language points to that there could be some negative stuff here, but there's still a real problem. Did you guys see it? There's an administrative problem, right? 
There's a problem that points to a deeper issue than just managing a daily distribution of food. It's a problem that, that no matter the attitude of the one complaining is most certainly a legitimate problem. And I think that's what makes part of this uh, telling for us very instructive. We don't know what went on behind the scenes. We don't know the teaching and the instruction that went on. Rather, what we see is the solution. We see a clear administrative solution. And that's our second point this morning, if you're taking notes, the solution. Remember, Jesus had told the apostles back in John 13 during what is called his farewell discourse. He told them very clearly, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how you love each other will be your key witness to a watching world that you're my followers. They would later be called Christians, right? To be a follower of Jesus, your love will be the characteristic mark. Neglecting widows in the daily distribution of food, even if they were difficult, even if they maybe weren't as pleasant as you'd like them to be, maybe even if they spoke a different language than you, it's still important. It's a problem. And I think we can all agree that neglecting them, especially as those who are in the body of Christ, it's casting an ugly shadow upon the light of love that should characterize Christ-like service in the church. So the apostles summon the whole church. How many people is that? They summon the whole church. Look at verse two, the full number. They call it church meeting. The apostles call a church meeting. That's a big congregational meeting. That's big. And they lay out the solution to the problem. We read it earlier. It's there in verses two through four. They said, hey, church, you, you pick out seven men. You pick out men of good repute. Put them before us, and we'll appoint them to this task, to oversee this task. That's in verses two through four. I don't want us to misunderstand what the apostles are doing here. Some have read this and come to the conclusion that, wow, those guys are kind of extreme, aren't they? Do they think they're above serving the tables? I mean, after all, aren't they the ones who are, uh, that we're following, that we're listening to their teaching? Shouldn't they be doing that? Well, I'm sure they were at some point, but that's, that's not what they're saying. They're offering a spiritually administrative solution to the problem. They recognized that they and the elders that they were raising up, the elders that would follow them were called by God primarily to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Should they take time away from that to focus on other tasks than the preaching and teaching of the word and prayer, right? What would happen to the preaching and teaching of the word and to prayer? What would happen if they took their time away from that to focus on the other? You know the answer. The preaching and teaching and prayer would have suffered would have suffered. So they do what good leaders do. They, as the cool kids say, they stay in their lane and they call upon the church to raise up other leaders to carry on the needed work and not just carry on the work themselves, but as we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, lead the whole church in carrying out the work as well. Now, though the word deacon, you might've noticed this already, the word deacon is not used in this passage. We use this all the time when we ordain deacons, but the word deacon's not used here. The idea of serving is related, 
for the idea of deacon. But it's clear from biblical context that the men chosen by the church, those men listed in verse five, are the first New Testament deacons. These are men full of the faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And most interestingly, catch this. What kind of names do they have? You're looking at me like, I can't pronounce some of them. I don't know. Yeah, they're Greek names. They all have Greek names. This has led a lot of scholars to suggest, and I agree with them, that these men were actually selected from among the group that raised the complaint. That's a church getting along, isn't it? I mean, we picture it like, okay, my camp's over here and my camp's over here and we want a solution and we want a solution. It sounds like every other government around, right? Why not church government as well? There's a complaint, the Greek speaking Jews against the Hebrew speaking Jews, yet they somehow, I would love, I mean, I love biblical church polity, right? I'd love to read the proceedings of this meeting. It had to have been very interesting. But otherwise, look what they did. They put forward seven men with Greek names. Wow, that's wonderful. They were able to come together or work together toward a solution that both honored the Lord and honored one another. Don't miss that. So this practice of having elders committed to lead the ministry of the word and prayer and to have deacons committed to lead the ministry of works and service continues on even today, particularly in our own church and in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America or the PCA as we call it. We believe that this is how God has ordained for his church to function and we truly believe that if we follow his instruction, if we read his word and take it to heart and we follow what he says to do, we will be best equipped to fulfill the vision and the mission that he's given to us. I mean, many times we say, Lord, I wish you would have given me instructions on this. He actually gave us pretty clear instructions on this. Let us listen to him. That's why we've done this morning, just as the church did in Acts 6, Sands apostles, but elders, ordaining deacons to lead us. So make no mistake, we're not propping up these men along with James and Austin. We're not propping them up as the only ones. They're the only ones around here who can and will do works of mercy and service. No, we've set them apart to lead us. Elders, right? To lead all of us, the whole church, in maintaining our witness of love, as we meet the needs of one another in our community. The growing church in Jerusalem needed this. Guess what? Our growing church needs it too. And so while our growth may not be as substantial as theirs, and while our complaints, and we have them, don't we? And our complaints may not be as substantial as theirs, the results they experience will most certainly reflect the same results we should expect to see as well, which brings us to this third and final point, the results. I didn't work too hard on the points this week, sorry. The results. So as a reminder, the account of setting apart the first deacons is presented in this way, just to make sure you're following with me this morning. So verse one, the disciples are increasing in number. Verse two, a complaint arose. A challenge, right? Verses three through six, the church moves forward in faith with a solution to that challenge. And then let's look again at verse seven. And the word of God continued to what? 
increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Isn't it wonderful? Growth leads to challenges that when handled properly lead to more growth. Don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the lie that says, oh, if you're doing it right, there won't be any problems. There will be challenges. Because the deacons were appointed, the apostles were able to devote themselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer, and many more disciples then were added to their number. You see, contrary to the popular attitudes today, right? Popular attitudes in modern conventions uh, that say adding leadership and structure to the church for equipping and edification, that inhibits evangelism is what some people will tell you. They're wrong. Doing what God tells us to do actually serves to encourage it and support it. Many around us scoff at the idea of church government. And I forgot to bring it, but our really big blue book, if you've ever seen me with it, our book of church order, which is our constitution of our denomination. They look at that and they say, oh, what a waste. No, praise God for the faithful who helped put that together to lead us in these times, right? Praise God for them. When those things, when constitutions and book of order and other things, when they're supported by the word of God and subservient to the word of God, they help keep us Christ-focused and mission-focused as well. Let me make this point in a, a different way. I want you to think about what the apostles could have done in response to the complaints but didn't. I, Howard Marshall, in his commentary, he gives 10. I'll only give you three, Okay. Imagine 10 solutions that are, imagine three, sorry. Imagine three solutions that they could have done, but they didn't, okay? I'll give you three. One, they could have separated the church body into two parts based on spoken language and cultural differences, right? Wouldn't it have been easier to have uh, the first apostolic church of Jerusalem over here filled with only Hebrew-speaking people and the second apostolic church of Jerusalem over here with only Greek-speaking individuals, that would have been a lot easier. Just divide them up. Do your thing. Instead, the apostles were committed to maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. And they sought a solution towards that end. Second, the apostles could have just said, what problem? We're busy. Leave us alone. They could have just swept that problem under the rug and hoped it went away. They could have said, hey, listen, we're not shepherds. We're CEOs. We're generals. Do what we say. Here's the plan, carry it out. No, that would have been supremely unloving. Rather, they got their hands dirty. They admitted where they weren't able to serve faithfully in that way, and they raised up others to serve. That honors all. Third, the apostles could have taken the solution into their own hands. This gets missed a lot. I mean, they were apostles after all. Doesn't it always surprise you in the New Testament when the apostles go to the elders and the congregations for advice? You're like, you're an apostle. Wouldn't you just do it on your own? Well, they could have, but what did they do instead? They called the whole church to a meeting. They invited every member, every disciple to play a part in choosing those men who would lead them and serve them. Isn't that great? That's how our process works here too. The church nominates the elders train and evaluate, and then the church elects officers. What did the apostles do? They did the same thing. Bring them here. These are the ones. These are the good ones. Let's lay hands on them 
and pray. And there's other things, like I said, that I could point out, but I believe those are sufficient for this morning. God's will for the leadership of his church is not only clear from scripture, but it is clearly carried out by the apostles here and in the rest of their ministries. That's why it is a great joy to ordain Morgan and and Ed and Greg and Jim to the office of deacon. Along with James and Austin as a church, we're now well equipped to meet the growing needs within our growing body and our growing community in the days ahead. There will be challenges, yes, but now we're more equipped So I speak on behalf of all your elders when I say that these men are even now and will be in the days ahead a great help to us, to the elders, as we continue to commit ourselves to that primary task given to elders, which are what? Teaching, preaching, shepherding, and governing the local church. We're not above the primary tasks of deacons. And as I'm sure you've already seen, many of us will gladly join in serving with them whenever and wherever we can. And surely the same is true for them as well. If you know these four men or these six men even, you know that they are also gifted teachers and gifted shepherds. And we know that like two of the original deacons, Philip and Stephen, you know what happens to two of these guys that are here? Philip preaches, right? He preaches. Who else? What's up? Stephen. You didn't know he was gonna be interactive today, did you? I'm making sure you're awake. It's warm in here. It's cold outside. Yeah. They were evangelists and teachers, right? So are these men. We're not talking about uniformity and gifts as much as we're talking about calling and taking up and what we're passionate about doing. Both offices work together to lead God's people by example and by administration. I believe we can expect to see the same kingdom results that the early church did. Now, it's not gonna be the same number-wise. That would surprise all of us. That's not what I'm talking about. But our church should expect continued growth. Growth in grace, growth in number, yes, but growth in ministry as well. But as I said, we're gonna face challenges. We're already facing them. I won't list them all now. But isn't it a joy to know that God will help us see a way through those challenges. You know, I often have to remind myself as the teaching elder, the pastor, that Jesus loves this church more than I do. I have to remind myself of that often. And I long to see us grow in our depth of faith and our depth of relationships with one another. And of course, I long to see us grow in breadth of our reach uh, to those who are in need of the gospel. I know and you should know that kingdom results don't come from me or from you, whether we're an officer or not. That job is too big. That job is too big. Kingdom results come from the king of the kingdom. So may Jesus continue to bless us. May he continue to lead us on in gospel triumph in this community. And may he be honored and glorified in each and every step along the way. Amen. Amen.